Warning, binge mode contains adult content. What? That's right. You know what that's in reference to. Or do you? If you want to find out what it is, you have to listen to binge mode and binge mode is laden with adult content. So if that's not what you want to hear, you better listen to the Ringer NFL show. Some great wet NFL content. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why it's time to learn joined up writing, please proceed. Joined up writing. Extreme caution. And now, binge mode. I thought, said Phineas Nigelus, stroking his pointed beard, that to belong in Gryffindor House, you were supposed to be brave. It looked to me as though you would have been better off in my own house. We Slytherins are brave, yes, but not stupid. For instance, given the choice, we will always choose to save our own necks. It's not my own neck I'm saving, said Harry tersely, tugging the trunk over a patch of particularly uneven, moth-eaten carpet right in front of the door. Oh, I see, said Phineas Nigelus, still stroking his beard. This is no cowardly flight. You will be noble. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Woo-hoo! What a great website. Joining me today, now that he's finished selecting a prime cut of dragon steak, Ringer staff writer. Yes. Your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Don't let the green tinge frighten you. It's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every nook, every cranny, every facet of the Harry Potter universe, whether or not... You can see Thestrals. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And Akio rate and review us. Akio five stars only. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans and which is an excellent place to share Christmas quilt patterns for creature. No! Let's brighten up that nest. But I didn't mean all the way out. Yesterday on Binge Mode Harry Potter. We explored how resistance shapes chapters 15 through 19 of Order of the Phoenix. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 20 through 23. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep! On details from all seven books, end date films, and the wider Potter canon. Mm. Taking the entire series into account from the moment the snake's fangs pierce our ribs. So put your hand on the porky and gaze into our eyes. Yes. Because it's time to head to St. Mungo's. Mal, has it not occurred to you, my poor puffed up puppet Jay, that there might be an excellent reason why the headmaster of Hogwarts is not confiding every tiny detail of the plot to you? No matter. It's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in order chapters 20 to 23 by climbing aboard this Scarlet Steam Engine to plot the Hogwarts Express. Hagrid back! Hagrid back! And what a tale he has to tell. Giants and murder and all sorts of secrecy. But Harry, Ron, and Hermione aren't the only ones who've noticed their 
large friends return. Umbridge is on the prowl, too, and she conducts an ominous inspection of Hagrid's first class back. At least there's still the DA to keep Harry happy. And in the group's final meeting before the holiday break, he lingers behind for some wetness. Hoping Joe will give him a Merry Christmas. She does. And so much more, including a full. Too bad Harry doesn't have much time to bask in the glory of his first kiss, though, because he dreams that he's a snake attacking Arthur Weasley. Tough stuff. He alerts Dumbledore, who sets plans in motion to save Arthur's life, and the gang spends the holiday shuttling between Grimmauld Place and St. Mungo's Hospital for magical maladies and injuries. Onward! Jason? Yeah. One podcaster can't feel all that at once. Mm. It explode. Mm. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So yes. let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 20 through 23 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is loss of control. Chapter 20, Hagrid's Tale. Mm. Harry, Ron, and Hermione rush down to Hagrid's hut with the aid of the invisibility cloak and the Marauder's Map as Umbridge and Filch and Mrs. Norris, of course, are still out there on the prowl. Ron has to crouch to prevent his feet from showing under the cloak. They've all grown up so much. Little moments like that remind us. They cannot wait to see Hagrid and find out what he's been up to. Hagrid, it's us, Harry shouts. Should have known. Been home three seconds, Hagrid replies, but there's pleasure in his voice. This is such a touching moment. Hagrid is part of the fabric of Hogwarts for Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and his absence has left them feeling unmoored in what should be the comfort of their everyday routine. But their excitement upon his return turns immediately to concern when the gameskeeper opens the door. Hagrid is a hot fucking mess. really bad. Hermione literally screams. You should see the other guy. When she looks at him. His hair is matted with congealed blood and his left eye is swollen shut. There are cuts all over his face and he's moving very awkwardly. Harry suspects broken ribs. Hagrid's secret mission appears to have gone poorly, it would seem. Whatever could do this to Hagrid must be terrible indeed. Where did he get those injuries? Well, we'll find out in time. It's from his half-brother. Grub. Grubby. Hagrid's keeping his mouth shut. For once. For the moment. (laughs) Literally for the first time ever. For like five seconds. Yeah. Hagrid, you've been attacked, said Ron. For the last time. It's nothing, Hagrid replies. Hermione encourages him to go seek medical attention like stat. Some of those cuts look nasty, she says, and Hagrid insists he's dealing with it. Dealing with it specifically by draping a slab of green-tinged dragon meat Mm. all over his face. Delicious. The kids ask again, what happened? Yes. And for once, Hagrid is not cracking under the strain of questioning. Can I? And like, listen, he'd know because he's told Harry literally everything he wasn't supposed to tell him before. Did the giants beat you up, Hagrid? Hermione asks. Hold on, young lady. Who said anything (laughs) about giants? What? What? Who? He? Hagrid, whose mission and the fallout from that mission require him maintaining a firm grasp not only the situation, but the information about that situation is panicking. But Hermione offers up the truth. It wasn't that hard. We guessed it. Okay. <laughs> this was not algebra. Okay. 
And it was, uh, you know, like, you're a half giant. You're with Madame Maxine, also a half giant, although she won't admit it. We're, you know, on a secret <laughs> mission from Dumbledore. So where could you go? What could you be doing? Dumbledore, by the way, who was telling anyone who would listen, someone should go someone talk go to the t- giant. Who should, any volunteers? Never known kids like Goosey for no one more. He muttered, splashing boiling water into three of his bucket-shaped mugs. I'm not complimenting you here. No one's some call it interference. But his beard twitched. Hagrid abruptly gives in. A stunning yeah, I mean, turn like, of events. Yeah, I've been looking. A stunning like, turn of I've events. I've been looking for giants. <laughs> Who said anything with giants? Yeah, I'm looking for giants. And you found them, said Hermione in a hushed voice. Well, they're not that difficult to find, you know. Pretty big sheet. He went to the mountains, you know, where giants live. But that's all you're getting out of me. 007 secret agent Rubius Hagrid. Except, small problem. Hagrid is a fiend for gossip. He can resist blabbing for a short while, as long as the other parties don't have some bit of juicy information that he might want to know about. Tell us about being attacked by giants, and Harry can tell you about being attacked by Dementors, Ron says. What do you mean about Dementors? Well, he's hooked. Harry follows up by dangling a mention of his trial and near expulsion, a near, if not dear, topic to Hagrid's heart, an expelli of Hogwarts himself. And the gameskeeper breaks down immediately. Oh, all right. Again, I'm color me shocked by this turn of events that Hagrid is ready to spill. Hagrid and Madame Maxime transpires set off immediately after the end of last school year in search of giants. Dumbledore, who, you know, has a real knack for sharing info when it suits him, told him where to go. The journey was arduous. For a month, they climbed, scrambling past boulders, sleeping in caves, getting their John Egret vibes on real good. Haggard and Maxime had to travel that way because magical modes of transportation are being closely monitored, which Haggard has to remind Ron of pityingly. The Resistance wants to act, but can't always control how it does so. Dumbledore had warned them about using magic near the giants, both to avoid spooking the giants and to avoid drawing the attention of Voldemort's messengers, who Dumbledore is sure will be there. Finally, Haggard and Maxime found them, a tribe of giants numbering near 80. Haggard says it was like watching bits of the mountain moving. According to Haggard, these are the last giants left, most of them 20 to 25 feet. Wizards killed a few, he says, but mostly they killed each other. Why did they kill each other, though? Because wizards drove them into hiding, much like muggles drove wizards into hiding. There used to be 100-some tribes, and now there's less than 100 bodies total. It's a tragedy. The wizards robbed the giants of their freedom. They reduce their control and in turn their numbers. Per Dumbledore's instructions, Haggard and Max make an offering to the giant chief. Official title, a gurg. Quote, the biggest, the ugliest, and the laziest. They sit down to a summit and tell the gurg named Carcass that they're there on behalf of Albus Dumbledore, who has a decent reputation among the giants. They bring him magic, and the logic here is fascinating. Magic isn't something the giants have. Food. Ron's first guess is an offering, is something they can get with ease. Magic is also something they fear when it's in the hands of wizards. Put it in their hands, though, and in their domain under their control, and it becomes a tool and a source of power rather than a strange weapon to be wielded against them. They first brought Carcass a branch of Galbraithian fire, everlasting fire, and things appear to be going okay. The strategy, go back the next day, keep the promise, build trust, and eventually build the relationship. The next day, he's waiting for them. They gift him a goblin-wrought battle helmet, and they learn that he's heard of Dumbledore, and things are kind of looking up. 
That night, though, a fight breaks out. They can hear it. It's loud, echoing across the mountains. Giants are violent by nature, Hagrid tells them. They aren't meant to live in large groups. And fights are common. This one went on for hours. And in the morning, Carcass's head. Whoops. Was at the bottom of the lake. And the new girl, Golgamath, mm-hmm. is much less receptive to the charms of Hagrid and Madame Maxine. You went to speak to him, asked Ron incredulously after you watched him rip another giant's head off? Carcass. Guys, they have a mission. They didn't trek for a month up to the mountains in order to, like, not talk to the giants. Nope. They may not be losing their already tremulous control over the circumstances, but they can still control their own conviction. When Hagrid and Maxine met with the new chief, the giants attacked him. Only Maxine's quick spell work allowed them to escape. But then they'd use magic against giants, which is a problem, and they lost any ability to guide the situation. They couldn't quit, though. But they had to hide. They found a cave and watching the giants from afar, attempting to find receptive giants to visit stealthily, they saw another group come a-calling, the Death Eaters. Uh-oh. Hagrid even recognized one of them. It's McNair. Remember him? The axe oh, yeah. sent by the ministry to execute Buckbeak. What a great dude. Who could have <laughs> guessed that guy would turn bad? And that meeting seemed to go swimmingly. No attack by the forces of Golgamath. Even here, Hagrid and Maxine decide, listen, we've come too far just to quit after a few setbacks, serious as those setbacks might be. (laughs) Some giants, they note, fled Golgamath's coup, and they were hiding out just like Hagrid and Max in the high mountain caves. So Hagrid and Max go to make contact with them. And all the while, they're hunted by McNair and his Death Eater partner. She was raring to attack him. She's something when she's roused Olympia. Fiery, you know. Expected the French in her. Hagrid and Max convinced Six, maybe seven injured foes of Golgamaths to join their cause. But Golgamath isn't going to leave unfinished business just dangling out there. He raids the caves and they kill the refugee giants. The rest of the survivors lose their courage. With that, Hagrid and Maxine have no choice. They slip away. They share Dumbledore's message, but the giants are not coming over. Okay, so who attacked Hagrid? Why is he in this state? And if Dear Sweet Golgi's coup happened shortly after Hagrid and Maxime arrived, where's he been all this time? Hagrid doesn't get a chance to answer these questions because there's a knock at the door. Through the window, they see a shadow that can only belong to Dolores Umbridge. The kids hide under the invisibility cloak and Hagrid opens the door. Now, Dolores isn't really fond of anyone other than, you know, fudge and quarrel. Yeah. (laughs) But... As we learned in last episode's restricted section, Umbridge is especially disdainful of those she would call half-breeds. So this meeting should go well. Umbridge introduces herself as the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher and High Inquisitor, then gets to the point. She heard voices. Who was Hagrid talking to? He says he was talking to Fang. Umbridge replies, and he was talking back to you? Uh. She also notes that there were three sets of footprints in the snow leading from the castle to his cabin. Uh-oh. Hagrid's like, well, I just got back. Maybe someone came by and I wasn't here. Umbridge says, there are no footsteps leading away from your cabin door. Well, uh, I, uh... <laughs> Umber searches the hut, but doesn't find anything. She asks what happened to Hagrid's face. Tripped over her broomstick, he says. And where have you been these past two months? I, I've been away from me health, he says. Just an absolutely iconic answer, given his current physical state. Yeah, said Hagrid. Bit of fresh air, you know. Yes, as gameskeeper, fresh air must be so difficult to come by, Umbridge replies. Hagrid continues, looking for a change of scenery, he says, and Umbridge cuts him off. Mountain scenery? Oh, shit, she 
knows. Yep. As we'll see when Umbridge evaluates Hagrid's lesson in the coming pages, this would be a difficult enough conversation for Hagrid to successfully navigate if he were in possession of all the facts about who she is, what she's doing, and how things have been going at Hogwarts. But our guy just turned up. He's barely had time to defrost his dragon steak. He doesn't know any of this. And absent that intel, he can't even attempt to direct and manage the flow of conversation. He's a leaf in the wind here, and Umbridge is blowing furiously. Hagrid makes up something about, uh, you know, the south of France, wonderful this time of year, blah, blah, blah. Umbridge doesn't seem to buy it, but she also doesn't press much further. Instead, she issues a warning. You ought to know, too, that as High Inquisitor is my unfortunate but necessary duty to inspect my fellow teachers. So I dare say we should meet again soon enough. Umbridge leaves. And out of an abundance of caution, the kids stay under the cloak, you know, just in case she's lurking outside. Hagrid is on that same wavelength as well, and he peeks out the window just to make sure. She's walking back to the castle. Okay, cloak's off. Time to debrief. Hermione wants to know what Hagrid's lesson plan is, hoping against hope that he isn't going to do something like, I don't know, have a hippogriff there that might slash somebody. What about the scroots? Or the scroots or <laughs> anything that could possibly be construed as dangerous. She begs him to do something boring, do something safe, do anything, anything at all that will just not get him in trouble. It would really be better if she saw you teaching how to look after porlocks, how to tell the difference between gnarls and hedgehogs, stuff like that. But that's not very interesting, Armani, he says. Great. Uh-oh. That's great. Uh-oh. Chapter 21, The Eye of the Snake. Any hope that Hagrid will play it safe fades as soon as Harry, Ron, and Hermione arrive for Care of Magical Creatures class. We're working in here today, says Hagrid. He's still somehow covered in bruises and fresh blood. And he's holding what appears to be half a dead cow while gesturing at the Forbidden Forest. Concerning! Right, I guess we're not going <laughs> to... We're not going to pump the brakes, I so guess. So it's not flobberworms right. today. <laughs> Bit more sheltered, he says. Anyway, they prefer the dark. Malfoy is afraid of the forest. We know this. He's been afraid of the mere idea of it since before his nighttime walk through the woods back in stone and certainly solidified his fear through that experience. And his sneering cool cracks when he hears this. What prefers the dark? <laughs> what? Hey, Did you hear? Did what? you hear? What? Who? Who? Crap? What? what was he talking about? The dark? So what are they studying? Quote, Harry nudged Ron and pointed into the black space between two gnarled yew trees. Ah, yew trees. Yew wood is the wood of Voldemort's wand. Yew, a symbol of regeneration and rebirth. The quote continues. A pair of blank, white, shining eyes were growing larger through the gloom, and a moment later, the dragonish face, neck, and then skeletal body of a great black-winged horse emerged from the darkness. As we'll learn momentarily, these are Thestrals. And apparently Hogwarts has a herd of them. What a relief for Harry, who's been seeing them all year and who's doubted his sanity as a result. Harry is facing the greatest challenges of his life. Fighting to take down Voldemort. Fighting to take down Umbridge. Fighting to repair his reputation and protect his friends and restore balance. Since Voldemort's resurrection and Harry's summer of solitude, though, he's felt his grasp slipping. His grasp on his goal, on his relationships, even on his sense of self. Mysteries like the winged horses exacerbated that effect, giving Harry reason to doubt not only his ability, but his very eyes, what he could see, what he could believe. Now that's starting to change. Neville and an unnamed Slytherin boy can also see the Thestrals, but that's it. Most of the class just sees strips of meat vanishing from the cow carcass. Now Harry and his classmates, even the ones who can't see the Thestrals, are going to find out what these creatures are all about. 
Right away, we see that Thestrals have a bad rep. Parvati pipes up to say, they're really, really unlucky. They're supposed to bring all sorts of horrible misfortune on people who see them. No, Hagrid says, that's just superstition, that is. They're unlucky, they're dead, clever, and useful. Hagrid goes on to say that these Thestrals pull the school carriages and, um, you know, they also transport Dumbledore when he's, quote, taking a long journey and don't want to operate. Rubius, big mouth, strikes again. <laughs> Maybe don't tell a bunch of students the way Dumbledore moves around. Maybe don't do that. Hagrid asks the class, hey, does anybody here know why only some people can see Thestrals? And Hermione, of course, has the answer. The only people who can see Thestrals are people who have seen death. Ten points to Gryffindor. What a great <laughs> class this is turning out to be. Him, him. Oh, no. Oh, no. Is that Dolores Umbridge? Or as you've named her? Um, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you received the note I sent to your cabin this morning, said Umbridge in the same loud, slow voice she had used with him earlier, as though she was addressing somebody both foreign and very slow, telling you that I would be inspecting your lesson. Hagrid responds cheerfully, we're doing Thestrals today. <laughs> Umbridge cups her hand to her ear and acts as if she can't understand what Hagrid is saying. Thestrals, Hagrid says, and flaps his arm. Has to resort to crude sign language, Umbridge scribbles in her pad. That tells us all we need to know. Umbridge's report isn't merely going to say that Hagrid is a substandard teacher. She's going to besmirch him as a person, insult his humanity and his intelligence, because he's different, because he sounds different. When Hagrid, flustered, as anybody would be, pauses to regain his train of thought, Umbridge scribbles, appears to have poor short-term memory. This is just very tough stuff. Draco Malfoy and his lot, always delighted by other people's humiliation, are beside themselves with glee. Hermione, meanwhile, is incandescent with anger. Are you aware that the Ministry of Magic has classified Thestrals as dangerous? Umbridge asks. Hagrid comes to their defense, naturally, but also says... They might take a bite out of you if you really annoy them. To which Umbridge jots down, show signs of pleasure at the idea of violence. <laughs> this is the thing about JK. She knows how to write a villain. Woo! She does. Hagrid again objects. Would a dog not bite if provoked? Thestrals just have a bad reputation, he says, because of their connection to and connotation with death. Which, okay, fair. Umbridge tells Hagrid to continue teaching so that she can walk and chat with the students. And she mimes walking as she says this, pointing at the students and then at her mouth. Hermione's about to blow her top, but there's nothing that Hermione or Harry or, most distressingly, Hagrid can do. Umbridge has the con. Do you find that you are able to understand Professor Hagrid when he talks, Umbridge asks. Totally impartial student Pansy Parkinson. Parkinson can barely answer because she is laughing. Hysterically. Tears in her eyes. No, because, well, it sounds like grunting a lot of the time. I think that's how Pansy Parkinson should. No, because <laughs> it sounds like grunting all the time. Umbridge dutifully writes this down and Hagrid soldiers on. He attempts to talk about the positive sides of Thestrals. They have, for instance, a great sense of direction with a Thestral at your side. It never lost again. Great Department of Mysteries journey foreshadowing here, and yes. we'll get more of that throughout this episode. Assuming they can understand you, of course, Malfoy says, and he and Parkinson lose their shit. You can see Thestral's lung bottom, can you? 
Umbridge says. Of course, Neville can. Whom did you see die? She asks without any sensitivity or warmth whatsoever. His grandfather, he says. She asks Neville what he thinks of Thestrals. Well, they're okay, he says, haltingly. Of course, students are too intimidated to admit they are frightened. She scribbles down and Neville objects, but it doesn't matter at all. Umbridge has the outcome she wanted. She was always going to get the information she wanted. And she tells Hagrid that, uh, you'll know the results of my report in 10 days. And she holds up her fingers as if he were a child and she needed to count them off for him. And then she leaves. Horrible. Our trio, horrified, debriefs after the lesson. A lesson, by the way, that was actually pretty damn good. Yeah. Especially by Hagrid's blast-ended scrut standard. These are genuinely fascinating, powerfully magical creatures, and they're not actually harmful. As Hagrid said, they're misunderstood, and that's because people fear what they don't understand. Because a lack of understanding represents a lack of control. Remember what Dumbledore says of Voldemort in Prince. It is the unknown we fear when we look upon death and darkness. Nothing more. Hermione laments her inability to fully appreciate Thestral. She says, the way some people can see them is some can't. I wish I could. Do you? Harry asked her quietly. This is a gutting moment. As we just learned, only those who've seen death can see Thestral. So Hermione's comment, which she instantly and furiously apologizes for, is akin to saying that she wishes she'd seen someone die or that seeing someone die isn't of any consequence. Of course, that's not what she really meant. That's not what she thinks. Her curiosity and thirst for knowledge just bested her sense and empathy in that instant. But the impetus is secondary to the effect. Again, Harry is set apart from his friends. And again, Harry is aligned strongly with Neville, who could have been the chosen one. Harry didn't choose to see Thestrals. He didn't want to see Cedric die. Remember what Lupin said to Harry in Prisoner of Azkaban about why Dementors affect him so. Quote, there are horrors in your past that the others don't have. And that was before the graveyard. Mm -hmm. That was before Cedric. That was before Voldemort returned. Harry can only see these creatures now because he's been through hell and emerged forever altered. That wasn't a choice that he got to make. But as with everything else in this story, the choice is how he moves forward. December arrives, and for the first time in his Hogwarts career, Harry doesn't want to be there. He's only enjoying doing Dumbledore's army these days, and that'll halt over the break anyway. He's Bound for the burrow with Ron, while that prospect fills him with joy, he's dismayed to think about Sirius alone in Grimwald Place over Christmas with nothing but creature bad memories and his own resentment for company. At least there's one more Dumbledore's army meeting before break. Harry arrives to find 100 golden baubles adorned with his face decorating the room. Dobby, hard at work. Luna enters first and issues one of her instantly iconic lines. Mistletoe! When Harry jumps back, she adds, good thinking. It's often infested with nargles. <laughs> Before Harry can even contemplate, and by the way, Luna knows where the weed is in Hogwarts. Luna knows where the marijuana is. She's found it. I mean. She's got constant supplies. She's tending the plants <laughs> Luna every evening. is fucking high. I have always just assumed that nargle was a particularly potent strain of yeah. her own design. Fucking man. Luna. Love that girl. Come hang. Anyway, <laughs> before Harry can even contemplate what Luna is on about, 
more students arrive, including Angelina, who tells Harry that she's replaced him with Ginny. But it's not Ginny time for Harry. Not quite yet. He's still on that show. And, (laughs) quote, he felt himself positively swelling as he watched her. (laughs) Harry observes the group revisiting all they've learned. And he felt himself positively, excuse me, swelling with pride. That's the actual line. They're really doing it. They're taking the power back, assuming responsibility for their own education, refusing to rely on Umbridge or anyone else to get them ready or deliberately prevent that. When the room clears, Harry knows it's just him and Cho and his throbbing erection. He's stalling, waiting for her to speak, too nervous to lead. And then he hears a sniff. She's crying freely. I'm sorry, she said thickly. I suppose it's just learning all this stuff. It just makes me wonder whether if he'd known it all, he'd still be alive. Harry's heart sank right back past its usual spot and settled somewhere around his navel. He ought to have known. She wanted to talk about Cedric. Woof! Talk about a cold shower. Harry tells her Cedric did know all this. And now he just wants to melt away. He's so deflated by the nature of this exchange. He just wanted a happy holiday. That would have been enough. Cho apologizes and then compliments his teaching. Quote, they looked at each other for a long moment. Harry felt a burning desire in his groin. Sorry, no. Harry felt a burning desire to run from the room. (laughs) And at the same time, a complete inability to move his feet. Harry is at odds with himself here. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to act. He's never been in this situation. This is a big moment in a young man's life, in any young person's life. And then she points out the mistletoe. Harry parrots and Luna's Nargles line. Fabulous moment. His brain feels frozen as Cho keeps moving toward him. She's close enough now that he can count her freckles. She half laughs, half sobs, and says, I really like you, Harry. Quote, he could not think. A tingling sensation was spreading throughout him, paralyzing his arms, legs, and brain. She was much too close. He could see every tear clinging to her eyelashes. And then they fucked. (laughs) When Harry returns to the common room, he's in shock. Quote, half of him wanted to tell Ron and Hermione what had just happened, but the other half wanted to take the secret with him to the grave. Is shock a code word for refractory period? Harry's so caught up in his own emotions that he can't even decide whether he wants to speak openly with his friends. He's a slave to his own body and mind right now, but in a good way. Hermione, as usual, gets right to it. Did you fuck Cho? Did you fuck Cho just now? Sorry. Did you kiss? And Ron sat up so fast that he sent his ink bottle flying all over the rug. Oh, my God. There's all these incredible JK fucking metaphors here. Fabulous. Double and my... triple and quadruple entendres. Ron sat up so fast that his quill flew into a hole. <laughs> I love this passage so yeah. much. This well, so said Ron, looking up at Harry, how was it? Harry considered for a moment. Wet. <laughs> he said truthfully. <laughs> Wet. <laughs> Fuck. A poet. Moist. Roses are red. Kisses are wet. Because she was crying, Harry continued heavily. (laughs) (laughs) This is just not great. Are you that bad at kissing? 
Hermione says, of course he isn't. How do you know? Said Ron in a sharp voice. Hermione says, Cho cries constantly these days. You think a bit of kissing would cheer her up, said Ron. Hermione tries his lack of sensitivity, but Harry is worked up now. Who does cry when someone's kissing them? I don't know, someone who's suffered a grave loss. Hermione looks at these poor fools with pity and spells it out. Cho is sad because Cedric died. And she's confused now because she liked Cedric, but now she likes Harry and she's feeling weird about it. Come on, guys. Doesn't help that she's hot for the guy who's there when Cedric died, Ron says. One person can't feel all that at once. They'd explode. Just because you've got the emotional range of a teaspoon doesn't mean we all have, Hermione replies. Part of being a teenager is discovering all these new things about your body and your feelings. And these are choices that if we're lucky, we get to make. Right now, Cho and Harry are experiencing something new and exciting. And weirdly, it feels right, but also not right. This is completely normal. We can't all relate to these specific circumstances, but we know what it's like to want something that feels forbidden. When Harry thinks about asking out Cho, it makes his, quote, stomach clench painfully. Young love should be a joy and awakening. And in so many respects, it is for Harry, but also it's a riddle that he can't quite solve. He's like Cho for ages. It's true, but it was never supposed to be like this. Love, like life, is messy. This is at once humanizing and relatable. Harry is just a kid. He's just a teenager who can't quite wrap his arms around a crush. But as with so much else in Harry's world, his challenges are compounded, and that usually leaves him feeling confused, unable to figure out his heart or steer his own life. As Harry drifts to sleep, his thoughts still on Cho and Ron's thoughts on Hermione's letter to Vic the Dick. Great little exchange here. What does she see in Chrome? Ron demanded as he and Harry climbed the boys' staircase. Well, said Harry, considering the matter, I suppose he's older, isn't he? And he's an international Quidditch player. Yeah, but apart from that... <laughs> <gasps> oh, Ron. Harry dreams first of Cho. Then, quote, his body felt smooth, powerful, and flexible. Cho's into it. Wait, no, sorry. The dream has changed. There's a snake. He's the snake. And he's in the familiar dark corridor again, but it's not empty. There's a man against the door, and he is asleep. And boy, do we know from the Quidditch World Cup that Arthur needs his rest. Yeah. But come on, my guy. You can't fall asleep like this. This is positively Madame Huchian. Snake Harry resists the urge to bite because there's work to do. Got to scout for the prophecy, as we'll later learn. But then the man stirs, and a silvery cloak falls from his leg. A wand comes from his belt. No choice now. Got to strike. Once, twice, three times. The man's ribs splintering, the blood gushing, the screams piercing the air. Harry! He wakes, soaked in sweat. Agony in his scar, Ron screaming his name. The pain blinds Harry so badly that he vomits. The only thought that Harry has is that he must find the strength, must muster the control to tell Ron what he saw. Your dad, your dad's been attacked. He frantically tries to explain that this wasn't a normal dream. Harry can't regulate what's happening to him. He doesn't understand it, but he knows one thing. It's real. He saw a snake potentially fatally attacking Arthur. He felt like he was a snake attacking Arthur. He's shaking uncontrollably. McGonagall arrives, and Harry's thrilled. This is what he needs, a member of the Order of the Phoenix. But she doesn't understand, and how can she when even Harry doesn't? He's never been able to fully grasp the connection between him and Voldemort. But this breach is unlike anything that's happened before. Harry wasn't just sensing something. He was robbed of his own body, robbed of his own mind, robbed of his own identity and purpose. And it happened when he was asleep, when he's vulnerable, 
when he's already least in possession of his own faculties and intent. Thank God McGonagall believes him. Put on your dressing gown, she says. We're going to see the headmaster. Chapter 22, St. Mungo's Hospital for Magic Maladies and Injuries. McGonagall leaps into action, rushing Harry and Ron both to Dumbledore's office. Past the password-protected gargoyle up the escalator stairs, they approach the door to Dumbledore's sanctum. And Harry can hear a babbling of voices coming from within. McGonagall knocks. They fall silent. Inside, the headmaster is sitting behind his desk in his nightclothes. McGonagall tells Harry to describe what he saw. Harry, annoyed that Dumbledore won't look at him, describes the vision. Arthur Weasley attacked by a huge snake. How did you see this, Dumbledore asks, further explaining that what he means is, from what perspective did Harry see these things? From the book, this was such a curious question that Harry gaped at Dumbledore. It was almost as though he knew. We learn in time that Dumbledore's fear of just such a change in the nature of the pathway between Harry and Voldemort motivated Dumbledore's distance from Harry. But of course, Dumbledore hasn't told Harry this or anything. He hasn't warned Harry. Uh He's chosen to maintain control and withhold facts, dispersing them at the time of his choosing when he absolutely needs to, or as the case will be, the time when circumstances have forced him to. And there is a cost. I was the snake, Harry says. I saw it all from the snake's point of view. Is Arthur seriously injured? Yes. The headmaster leaps up. Dumbledore's sudden physicality, a measure of how dire the circumstances are, surprises Harry. Again, he harps on how the headmaster refuses to look at him. This might seem like a strange and silly thing for Harry to even notice, let alone focus on in this moment. But think about how afraid he is. He just fell out of himself into another being. Saw himself attack someone that he cares about. He's questioning not only what and why and the how, but who. Who am I? Who was in control of me? Was that me that did those things? And when we feel that kind of doubt... We lose our own identity. We seek security in the familiar. Dumbledore has been that for Harry since he entered the wizarding world, but that comfort is gone now. Dumbledore speaks to the portraits. That's who he was chatting with. Each a former headmaster. He calls Everard and Dillis, quote, two of Hogwarts' most celebrated heads, to action. They were listening, of course. All the portraits are, though they're now pretending to varying degrees of believability to be dozing. Dumbledore gives them Arthur's description and tells them to raise the alarm and to, quote, make sure he is found by the right people. Dumbledore explains that, as notable heads, these two have portraits in other important wizarding institutions. This is obviously incredibly useful. They can move between these portraits. Harry says that Arthur could be anywhere, but it's obvious that Dumbledore chose these portraits for a reason. He knows where their other portraits are, and he knows where Arthur was and what he was doing. He just isn't telling Harry, despite how that knowledge would help to anchor Harry to explain away at least some of his confusion. But there's so much more to do, and time is short. Dumbledore strokes Fox, telling the phoenix, we will need a warning. And Fox, who is just fucking dope, disappears in a flash. Albus sent him to spy on Umbridge to keep a lookout, knowing that the High Inquisitor has sources of her own in numerous places. Dumbledore then begins fiddling with a strange instrument, which emits puffs of green smoke. The smoke takes the shape of a serpent, mouth opening wider and wider. But in essence divided, Dumbledore asks, and the smoke serpent splits into two. This seems to satisfy Dumbledore. More on this in the seven. Harry wonders if the contraption is confirming his story and, quote, looked eagerly to Dumbledore for a sign. 
but he gets nothing. He just wants some explanation, something to hold on to so that he can regain some semblance of his bearings and begin to process this. Before Harry can ask what's going on, though, Everard returns. I yelled until someone came running, he says. He doesn't look good. Then Dillis returns. Yes, they've taken him to St. Mungo's, Dumbledore. They carried him past my portrait. He looks bad. Dumbledore sends McGonagall to gather Fred, George, and Ginny. Ron is naturally terrified. We focus to this point on Harry's feeling of lost control in the moment and Dumbledore's choice to try to maintain whatever control he can, even as Harry and the situation slip away. What about Ron? He's a bystander in possession of neither the facts nor any real comprehension of what's happening, why or how his best friend connects to it. Every foundation on which Ron's life is built is in limbo. What about Molly? McGonagall asks. Dumbledore says Fox will take care of that as soon as he's done keeping an eye out. Quote, but she may already know. The excellent clock of hers. Harry thinks about the clock, each hand corresponding to a member of the family and showing their location and whereabouts. He wonders if Molly is watching that clock with it being so late. And then he remembers her encounter with the boggart. He flashes back to his vision. Arthur, lifeless, covered in blood. He felt cold. A boggart assumes the shape of our worst fears, and now those fears are playing out in reality. Harry is not only helpless to prevent it, but intimately involved in the doing of it. Dumbledore grabs a kettle, which we'll soon learn is an off-the-books porky. Not his last one of the book, either. Then goes to the portrait of the wizard wearing Slytherin colors. This is Phineas Nigelus Black, the great-great-grandfather of Sirius Black. Phineas, clearly a frustrated actor, faint sleep. When finally roused, he first balks at Dumbledore's request that he visit his other portrait, which, we learn through Harry's deduction, hangs at 12 Grimald Place. This is the seemingly empty frame that Harry has heard sounds emitting from in the room he stayed in over the summer. Finally, he agrees to go. Phineas, Dumbledore says, is to tell Sirius that, quote, Arthur Weasley has been gravely injured and that his wife, children, and Harry Potter will be arriving at his house shortly. Off he goes. Then Ginny and the twins arrive, looking understandably shell-shocked. Your father has been injured in the course of his work for the Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore says. He tells them that he's sending them to Grimald Place, where they'll meet Molly. Then there's a flash, and a single feather floats to the floor. Fox is warning. Fox is the best. Fox and Crookshanks. Mm-hmm. Just love them. And Hedwig, obviously. Protect Hedwig. She must know you're out of your beds, Dumbledore says. Minerva, go head her off. Tell her any story. Think about this, the urgency with which Dumbledore is speaking. Mm -hmm. He is the greatest sorcerer in the world, and he can't just focus on saving Arthur or helping the kids. He has to evade umbrage. He has to worry about the ministry. He has to worry about Voldemort. Even the greatest beings can be robbed of power and the ability to navigate freely. But Dumbledore doesn't allow this to break him. He looks for any crack, any way to maintain the insurgency. And off McGonagall goes. Dumbledore gathers Harry and the Weasleys around the porky and he counts them down. One, two, quote, it happened in a fraction of a second. Before Dumbledore says three, his eyes meet Harry's for the first time since last school year. Quote, at once, Harry's scar burned white hot as though the old wound had burst open again and unbidden, unwanted, but terrifyingly strong. There rose within Harry a hatred so powerful he felt for that instant that he would like nothing better than to strike, to bite, to sink his fangs into the man before him. Three. <laughs> this is, we will understand in time, the horcrux inside Harry, the snake within, the piece of Voldemort that resides inside him, 
rising in this moment to face an enemy. Harry will understandably harp on this sensation. He can't explain it. He can't process it. Dumbledore, though, clearly expected something like it. That's why he's been avoiding Harry. That's why he chanced this glance here when he knew that Harry would be pulled away from him. He needed to learn more. He needed to know. He will tell Harry at the end of order that he thought he saw, quote, a shadow of him stir behind your eyes. But he doesn't tell Harry that here. Harry remains at sea, drowning in doubt and fear. Back at Grimald Place, Sirius is screaming at Creature, out! This will be the command that Creature takes literally leaving. We'll learn for Narcissa Malfoy. He's been waiting for this fucking loophole. It's an instant when Sirius thinks he's in control, literally commanding another creature, but really he's lost everything. Creature's loyalty, the sanctity of his home, the Order's mission, and even his life. Sirius rushes over to Harry and the Weasleys, and Harry can smell that he's been drinking, and it's heart-rending detail. Yes. What's going on, he asks. As Fred and George and Ginny stare at him, Harry explains the vision, leaving out, pointedly, that he saw it from the perspective of the snake. Fred, George, and Ginny remember hearing this for the first time, and they are shaken. From the book, Harry did not know whether he was imagining it or not, but he fancied there was something accusatory in their looks. What a helpless feeling, especially given that they don't know the whole truth. Notable, by the way, that Ron, though he looks at Harry in question, does not speak aloud about Harry's snake eye view. He chose Harry over his family in that moment. The Weasley children's father is gravely injured, perhaps mortally injured, and they are powerless. Ron, Fred, George, Ginny, three wizards and a witch. And yet there's nothing they can do. It's out of their hands. Well, can they go to him, at least? Ginny says, we've got to go to St. Mungo's. Serious. Suddenly the voice of moderation says, no, you can't. Fred and George aren't having this. The desire to be with family, with loved ones, in times of great need is primal. Reason be damned. Serious counters. How are you going to explain how you knew Arthur was attacked before the hospital even let his wife know? George doesn't particularly care about these small details, even if they are of crucial consequence. His and Fred's emotions understandably are at the wheel. But rushing off to the hospital would alert the ministry that Harry is having visions, and that can't happen. This is an extremely fraught moment. What choice will the Weasleys make? What will loyalty to Harry and Dumbledore cost? Can anyone really be in command of their own life if they always have to put Harry, Dumbledore, and the Order first? That's the calculus of war. Mm -hmm. After some extremely heated back and forth, Sirius pushes on. Your father knew what he was getting into, he says, and he won't thank you for messing things up for the Order. The kids might feel like they lack control in this moment, but Sirius's reminder is huge. Mm -hmm. Arthur had the ability to decide whether or not to join the Order of the Phoenix. He believes in this fight. He believes in what he's doing. Easy for you to say, stuck here, bellowed Fred. I don't see you risking your neck. The quote continues, the little color remaining in Sirius's face drained from it. He looked for a moment as though he would quite like to hit Fred, but when he spoke, it was in a voice of determined calm. Sirius is making a choice here, too. He could be rash. He could offer to transform into Padfoot and lead them off. He could seek adventure under the guise of care. But he's being mature. He's being cautious. He's being wise, even as his courage is being attacked. Sirius summons some butterbeer for the kids, and all they can do now is wait. 
from the book. They all drank it for a while. The only sounds were those of the crackling of the kitchen fire and the soft thud of their bottles on the table. It's just them and their misery. No decisions to make, no actions they can take. Harry is in a turmoil. He did raise the alarm, yes, alerted Dumbledore that Arthur had been attacked. But also, had it not been he who had done the attacking and why in Dumbledore's office, in the moments as they were about to grab the port key, did he feel like he wanted to attack him too? Suddenly a scroll of parchment materializes out of a sudden burst of flame. Message from Molly. Dad is still alive. I am setting out for St. Mungo's now. Stay where you are. I will send news as soon as I can. Still alive, but that makes it sound George doesn't need to finish the sentence. It's the longest night Harry has ever known. As it truly must be for Ron and Fred and George and Ginny and Mrs. Weasley and the entire family. Harry and Sirius, quote, looked at each other every so often, intruders upon the family grief. Then, just after five in the morning, Molly arrives. She tells them that Arthur's resting and that he's going to be okay. That they can all go to see him later. Bill is with him now. Relief cascades over the room. And Sirius calls for Creature. He wants to make breakfast. But Creature doesn't come. As we'll soon learn, he's left, choosing to follow a different path, obey a different master. Harry's dreading interacting with Molly. But as usual, she provides uncommon comfort and warmth. I don't know what would have happened if it hadn't been for you, she says to Harry. Harry not only saved Arthur's life, but, as Molly says, gave Dumbledore time to think up a cover story for why Arthur was there, avoiding a Sturgis-like situation. Quote, Harry could hardly stand her gratitude. He doesn't feel heroic or useful. He just feels dirty and tainted. Mm -hmm. In possession of some foul parasite, maybe, but not his own faculties. After Sirius and Molly share a poignant moment in which it's so achingly obvious how, even amid these dreary circumstances, Sirius has come alive through the sheer force of their presence, Harry pulls Sirius aside. He didn't want the Weasleys to know about the snake. Understandable. Dumbledore, of course, knows, but Harry isn't comfortable letting the headmaster know how that made him feel. And he hasn't told anyone about how he nearly lost control. But Sirius is his godfather, so he tells him about seeing through the eyes of the snake. And then he says, but that's not all serious. I think I'm going mad. And then he tells him about the moments just before the portkeep brought them to Grimald. He continues, for a couple of seconds there, I thought I was a snake. I felt like one. My scar really hurt when I was looking at Dumbledore. Serious, I wanted to attack him. Sirius tries to settle Harry's nerves. This is just a side effect of the vision. You're tired. You need rest. Don't worry about it. Harry's adamant. It was like something rose up inside of me. Something that robbed him of his agency, his sense of self. Sirius says he needs sleep. That's it. From the book, he clapped Harry on the shoulder and left the pantry, leaving Harry standing alone in the dark. Everyone goes off to bed, but Harry is afraid to sleep. He doesn't trust his own body or mind. But he also doesn't tell Ron this. He pretends that he slept. He fears what the others will think of him. He fears what he's starting to think of himself. At lunchtime, Tonks and Mad-Eye arrive to escort them to St. Mungo's. And Tonks is fascinated by Harry's vision. She asks if he has any seers in the family and then says, no, I suppose it's not really prophecy you're doing, is it? Another brilliant move from J.K. Rowling here, priming us for the revelations to come in the climax of the book regarding Harry and the prophecy. The group arrives at St. Mungo's, more on this institution of healing in today's restricted section, by the way. And Mrs. Weasley greets Harry and the Weasley children and brings them to see Arthur. Tonks and Mad-Eye wait outside. It ought to be just family first. Tonks says, 
Harry thinks that that means he should wait as well. And he's about to step aside when Molly pushes him forward. Don't be silly, Harry, she says. Arthur wants to thank you. Arthur appears lively and is putting on a pretty brave face, but it's clear how serious this attack was and what the potentially long-lasting effects could be. He says, seems there was some rather unusual kind of poison in the snake's fangs that keep the wounds open. They're sure they'll find an antidote. Great. Cool. Arthur tries to soothe everyone's concerns by pointing out how much more fucked up the other patients in the room are. Listen, everybody here is way worse off than I am, guys. I'm fine. (laughs) The healers aren't going to be able to try stitches on them. Yeah. That dude's got a werewolf bite. That woman, she got bitten by something we don't even know. She won't say in her leg. Boy, does it smell like something awful. It's like if you took a shit and didn't vanish it. (laughs) (laughs) When Fred... Wonders if there's any news about the attack in the prophet. Arthur points out that the ministry wouldn't want this kind of negative news getting out. No, Molly cuts him off. He's clearly about to say that they wouldn't want it getting out specifically that a giant snake got into wherever he was, which, again, we will learn, is the entrance to the Department of Mysteries. George asks where Arthur was when he was attacked, and he refuses to say. Molly definitely refuses to say. You were guarding it, weren't you? said George quietly. The weapon. The thing you know who's after. Oh, by the way, Harry, didn't you say that uh, you know who has a giant snake? This is a tense moment because they're trying to get information, but it's also a nice moment of pride Mm. for the Weasley children. Nobody wants to be in this situation, of course. Nobody wanted things to go this way, but their parents are out there on the front line trying to take back the power, even if they won't talk about it. Molly shoes the kids outside so that they can discuss order business with Tonks and Mad-Eye. Is that extendable ears is music? Fred and George deploy the ear and hand Harry the string end to place in his ear. Their way of thanking him for saving their father's life. What Harry hears is chilling. Dumbledore seems almost to have been waiting for Harry to see something like this. Yeah, well, said Moody, there's something funny about the Potter kid. We all know that. Dumbledore seemed worried about Harry when I spoke to him this morning, whispered Mrs. Weasley. Of course he's worried, growled Moody. The boy's seeing things from inside you know who's snake. Obviously, Potter doesn't realize what that means, but if you know who's possessing him, Harry pulls out the ear and looks up at his friend's faces, which are, quote, suddenly fearful. What a terrifying, crippling feeling. Not only that they think this is true or that it might actually be true, but that Dumbledore suspected, and maybe for a while, and didn't warn him or help him. If Harry can't count on Dumbledore, can't even count on himself, What hope does he have? Chapter 23, Christmas on the Closed Ward. Quote, Was this why Dumbledore would no longer meet Harry's eyes? Did he expect to see Voldemort staring out of them, afraid, perhaps, that their vivid green might turn suddenly to scarlet, with cat-like slits for pupils? Harry, as he's thinking this, runs his hand over the back of his head, checking for a Voldemort-shaped bulge, and not, to be clear, in the way that Bellatrix will check for a Voldemort-shaped bulge. Quote, he felt dirty, contaminated. Harry is certain now. He had been the snake. He's tainted. And a horrible thought strikes him. He is the weapon. Narrator, you're not. Quote, it was as though poison were pumping through his veins. The guards aren't for his protection, he thinks. They're to protect other people from him. Harry has been doubting his grip on his brittle. But now the crushing thought settles over him. Others have been doubting it, too. They don't trust him, he worries. And what's worse, they can't even keep an eye on him at all times. Quote, 
Voldemort made me do it, and he could be inside me, listening to my thoughts right now. Mrs. Weasley's worrying over him. But Harry can't share these thoughts. They're a toxin inside of him, and the last thing he wants to do is spread them. He already fears that he's spreading it unknowingly, and of course he's ashamed, ashamed and afraid of what he's becoming and how he's being used. He runs through all the scenarios for the magic that could explain this connection, and then real panic strikes. However he's doing, if if Voldemort is possessing him, Harry is giving him a portal into the Order's headquarters. That's it. He has to leave. That's the only way he can fix it. He has to remove himself from this situation. He'll go back to Privet Drive. That's how desperate he is. He prepares to leave, and then he hears, Running away, are we? It's Phineas. I thought that to belong in Gryffindor House, you were supposed to be brave. Looks to me as though you would have been better off in my own house. We Slytherins are brave, yes, but not stupid. For instance, given a choice, we will always choose to save our own necks. This grates. Harry isn't thinking about saving his own neck at all. He's thinking about saving the lives of everyone around him. He's not just readying to flee. He's readying to leave the wizarding world. This is a huge decision. Oh, I see, Phineas mocks. This is no cowardly flight. You are being noble. As Harry moves toward the door, Phineas shit-talking turns into actual, actionable information. He has a message from Dumbledore. Harry spun around. What is it? Stay where you are. I haven't moved. (laughs) So what's the message? I have just given it to you. You don't. Oh, my God. Said Phineas Nigella smoothly. Dumbledore says, stay where you are. Harry asks for more, but that's all the information. Harry's temper rose. He could not believe that Dumbledore still, after all this, is refusing to tell him anything. This stay put bullshit was all Dumbledore could offer after the Dementor attack as well. Phineas launches into an iconic speech that has a real... Lecture the millennials vibe. Has it not occurred to you, my poor puffed up Popinjay, that there might be an excellent reason why the headmaster of Hogwarts is not confiding every tiny detail of his plan to you? Have you never paused while feeling hard done by avocado toast dripping off your lips to note that following Dumbledore's orders has never yet led you into harm? Eh, It's come close, though. Contrast this with Snape's You have been raising him like a pig for slaughter line from Prince's Tale and Deathly Hallows. As Phineas makes his exit, Harry screams after him, Fine, go then, and tell Dumbledore thanks for nothing. Despite his fears, he drifts off to sleep. It was as though a film in his head had been waiting to start the corridor again, the door from the book again. Something he wanted with all his heart lay beyond a prize beyond dreams. Ron wakes Harry to mention dinner, but leaves before Harry can respond. From the book, he would not go down to dinner. He would not inflict his company upon them. Then he wakes again. He sees Phineas's outline and realizes Dumbledore must have been spying on Harry. He thinks to ensure that Harry doesn't attack anyone. From the book, the feeling of being unclean intensified. Christmas is coming, and Harry, Sirius, and the Weasleys are decorating Grimald Place. Sirius is in quite chipper spirits with so much company around him. And Hermione shows up. Having blown off a family ski trip, don't tell Ron that skiing's not that good, okay? He makes fun of it already. She, Ginny, and Ron corner Harry, who'd been hiding out in Buckbeak's room, feeding him rats. Ask him how he's feeling. Fine, he says. Oh, don't lie, Hermione said impatiently. Ron and Ginny say you've been hiding from everyone since you got back from St. Mungo's. Harry's like, what the fuck? You guys are all just talking about me behind my back. They do, do they, he says. They argue back and forth, and Harry's still so out of sorts. 
His friends are concerned because he won't engage with them, won't even look at them. Sounds a little familiar, like how Dumbledore wouldn't look at Harry. Harry, meanwhile, thinks it's his friends who won't look at him. He says he doesn't want to talk about this, and then Ginny drops some knowledge on him. Well, that was a bit stupid of you, said Ginny angrily, seeing as you don't know anyone but me who's been possessed by you-know-who, and I can tell you how it feels. That's right! Ginny was also good pals with Harry's close personal friend, Tom Riddle. Timothy. I forgot, Harry said. Lucky you, Ginny replied. I'm sorry, Harry said, and he meant it. Ginny's life was also forever altered by her exposure to Tom Riddle, by the loss of agency that she suffered in those moments. But she didn't let it destroy her. Ginny asked Harry what was the vision like. Did he lose time? Can he remember everything that happened to him? And when he says, you know, yeah, I can. Then you know who hasn't ever possessed you, said Ginny simply. When he did it to me, I couldn't remember what I'd been doing for hours at a time. I'd find myself somewhere and not know how I got there. Harry still doesn't really know what to believe, but this is a huge relief nonetheless. Still, can't shake this. I was inside the snake. It was like I was the snake. What if Voldemort somehow transported me to London, he wonders. And Hermione, who has read Hogwarts A History from cover to cover several times because she's already read Umbridge's textbook. She needs something else to do. She's like, my dude, my guy, how many times do I have to tell you you can't apparate or disapparate into or out of Hogwarts? I'm not the weapon after all, Harry thinks, and the weight of the world leaves his shoulders. Dumbledore and the adults are still withholding information from Harry, but his friends, his peers, have made a decision. They will guide him toward peace. Christmas Day, a festive day, except for Molly weeping because Percy returned his gift. What a fucking dick. Hermione, this new fragrance. Thanks for the book, Harry. I've been wanting the new theory of numerology for ages, and that perfume is really unusual, Ron. (laughs) And a fucking course. She's got a present for Creature. Don't worry. It's not clothes. It's a quilt for his bedroom, which is inside a cupboard in the basement under some pipes leading from the boiler. They go down and open up Creature's studio apartment, and it's like a little rat's nest, and it's filled with black family heirlooms that he's managed to steal in his loincloth, including a picture of Creature's favorite, Bellatrix Lestrange. Harry recognizes her from his trip through Dumbley's memories in the pensive. Creature, however... It's nowhere to be seen. A fact that no one is concerned enough about. Guys, Creature has been creeping his creature ass around the house this whole time, mumbling and talking shit, and now he's just gone and nobody can find him. Sirius notes that house elves can't leave the house. Uh That's why they're called house elves and not leave the house elves. (laughs) They're tied to their family's house, said Sirius. Harry, though, has some other information about how you control these house elves. They can leave the house if they really want to, he says. Dobby did. He left the Malfoy's house to give me warnings three years ago. He had to punish himself afterwards, but he still managed it. Also, serious. You fucking ordered him out. Mm-hmm. As his master. What did he do? He went out. From the book, Sirius looked slightly disconcerted for a moment, then said, I'll look for him later. I expect I'll find him upstairs crying his eyes out over my mother's old bloomers or something. Of course, he might have crawled into the airing cupboard and died, but I mustn't get my hopes up. Sirius has lost his mastery of creature and the situation, but he doesn't know it. And no one will realize it until it is too late. Right now, it's time to visit Arthur. Mr. Weasley's wound is stubbornly resisting the healer's ministrations. Powerful venom on Nagini. Yeah. 
So in desperation, trying out a muggle technique and Arthur is delighted. This coupled with Harry's holiday present of fuse wire and screwdrivers. What a time for Arthur. And unlimited rest as well. Mm. Loves a nap. Arthur says, well, they're called stitches, Molly. Ha, 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 No, 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 no. Arthur, dear, sweetie, my darling dumpling, what are they really doing? Surely you're not sewing up your skin meat like it's a holy pair of jeans. Molly's freaking out. Hermione is like, guys, you know what? On non-magical wounds, this stuff's like pretty effective. It actually works, guys. Sorry. (laughs) It's getting tense, so the kids set out to find the tea room. Instead... They find the empty space that was once Gilderoy Lockhart. And Hermione's still breathless. She's like, Professor, hello. Remember him? He doesn't. Or yeah, he kind of does. He's, he's getting to, a little... Kind of. How are you, Professor Ron S? I'm very well indeed. Thank you, said Lockhart exuberantly, pulling a rather battered peacock feather quill from his pocket. Now, how many autographs would you like? I can do joined up writing now, you know? Hey, guys, almost as good as new. Lockhart back. A healer appears and leads Lockhart off to where he resides. The kids follow. Lockhart, we find out, stays in the long-term resident ward. For permanent spell damage, you know, the healer says Lockhart was a villain and a fool, but he's become a tragic tale, so desperate to influence, so driven by his greed that he wound up sacrificing everything, including his memories. There are other patients on the ward. A sallow-skinned, mournful-looking wizard lay in the bed opposite, staring at the ceiling. He was mumbling to himself and seemed quite unaware of anything around him. This is Bode, as we'll learn, an unspeakable whom the Death Eaters put under the Imperious Curse and forced to try to steal the prophecy, which addled his mind, but whom the healer here says is regaining the power of speech. That's why he'll soon be killed by the devil snare that's delivered to him that very holiday under the guise of a Christmas gift. Down behind a curtain, there are more people. Neville, Longbottom's parents, Frank and Alice. Neville is there with his grandmother, visiting his parents for Christmas. This is heartbreaking stuff, one of the most agonizing passages in any of the books. Mm. Neville is extremely distressed to see his classmates there. Remember, he has not told them about his parents, but his grandmother recognizes her grandson's classmates straight away. Yes, 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 I know who you are, of course, she says to Harry. Neville speaks most highly of you. She adds, and you two are clearly Weasleys, extending a hand to Ron and Ginny. Yes, I know your parents. Not well, of course, but fine people, fine people. And you must be Hermione Granger. She goes on to make a comment about Neville not quite having his father's talent, and it starts to click for Ron. Is that your dad down the end, Neville? Ron, read the fucking room. Come on, my guy. Very tough. Mrs. Longbottom is shocked that Neville has never told his friends about his parents. For her, of course, the way that they were damaged is awful, but it is also a point of pride because they fell fighting. Neville looks miserable. Quote, Harry could not remember ever feeling sorrier for anyone, but he could not think of any way of helping Neville out of the situation. Neville's grandmother adds, observing this, realizing this, comprehension dawning, well, it's nothing to be ashamed of. You should be proud, Neville, proud. They didn't give their health and their sanity so their only son would be ashamed of them, you know. Now, Neville didn't have any control when Bellatrix and Barty and co. tortured his parents into madness and ripped them out of his life. His choice of when to share their story and with whom was really all that was left to him. And now his grandmother is telling it. The short version, anyway. Neville's parents were extremely popular, and they were tortured into insanity by the Death Eaters. 
Highly gifted the pair of them, Neville's grandmother says. I, yes, Alistair, what is it? And at that moment, Neville's mother comes walking down toward them. Quote, she no longer had the plump, happy-looking face Harry had seen in Moody's old photograph of the original Order of the Phoenix. Her face was thin and worn now. Her eyes seemed overlarge, and her hair, which had turned white, was wispy and dead-looking. She hands Neville a gum wrapper, and he quietly thanks her. Quote, Neville looked around at the others, his expression defiant, as though daring them to laugh. But Harry did not think he'd ever found anything less funny in his life. Harry thinks he sees Neville slip the wrapper into his pocket, and his grandmother's comments reveal that he has a bedroom full of them. This wrapper is not a piece of trash to Neville. It is a treasure, a link to the parents that he never really got to know. It's a way of holding on to them, tangible proof that they lived, that they still do, that they're here, and that they love him. Belichick Lestrange did that, whispered Hermione, horrified as they left. That woman creature's got a photo of in his den. Yes, and we should all be concerned that creature is nowhere to be found. Jason? Yeah! What do you mean, that's the general idea? We need a very specific idea. Mm. So please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about St. Mungo's. St. Mungo's. Ah, a wonderful establishment founded by a healer named Mungo Bonham in the 1600 St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries Acts, much like a hospital in the Muggle world. Visitors enter into a waiting room filled with rickety chairs and old magazines. For instance, there are different floors depending on the kind of injury, and there's a gift shop and a tea room on the top floor. But as Arthur learns the hard way when he attempts to add a bit of Muggle medicine to his magical means of healing, the wizarding hospital naturally requires some special properties. The place is hidden within the seemingly derelict under-renovation Purge and Downs limited department store right on a busy shopping street for Muggles. As Moody explains in this section, that location was specially selected. It was too big to house in Diagon Alley, and unlike other important magical buildings like Gringotts and the Ministry, it couldn't go underground because even for witches and wizards, fresh air. So necessary. And as the preeminent medical care facility in Wizarding Britain... St. Mungo's serves people from around the country who require more help than what they can get with simple spells or fixer-up potions at home. Hogwarts students attend on occasion, as Katie Bell does in Half-Blood Prince, because the cursed necklace was so dangerous that Madame Pomfrey couldn't cure her by herself. And even muggles enter St. Mungo's care when injured by magical means. As Ron scoffs to Harry, those patients aren't addressed by doctors, quote, those muggle nutters that cut people up, but rather by healers or perhaps meta-wizards, though the latter are more often given field duty at events like Quidditch matches. Becoming a healer is a difficult task. As the trio will learn in order, that career path involves securing an E, or better, at newt level in potions, herbology, transfiguration, charms, and D-A-T-D-A. That breadth of knowledge makes sense because healers have to respond to a wide variety of magical injuries. St. Mungo's has four floors of wards, each devoted to different sorts of maladies, and as far as we know, named for famous witches and wizards. The ward Mr. Weasley calls home for Christmas, for instance, is named for Di Llewellyn, a famous Quidditch player who, according to Quidditch Through the Ages, was eaten by a chimera while on vacation in Greece. That's an injury even healers couldn't have salvaged. They can do most things, though, like get Mr. Weasley chipper and ready to return home just an afternoon after being attacked by a poisonous snake. 
spend their days addressing problems both large and small, mental and physical. According to a post on Pottermore about types of wand, wood, hawthorn, and willow wands, though, tricky and somewhat divisive, are particularly suited to healing magic. The text doesn't say, but perhaps a hawthorn or willow wand is what appears as one half of the St. Mungo's emblem, one of the simplest yet sensible images in the wizarding world, a wand crossed with a bone, magic crossed with healing. Our heroes won't return to St. Mungo's after this small section of book five, but it's a sorrowful and empowering experience while they are there. Jason shows signs of pleasure mm. at idea of yes. foreshadowing. Mm. So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Order, chapters 20 through 23, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. At St. Mungo's, we get this quote. They climbed a flight of stairs and entered the creature-induced injuries corridor, where the second door on the right bore the words, dangerous, Diluellen ward, serious bites. A very overt creature, serious death clue here. Creature-induced injuries, serious bites, dangerous. Also, in terms of Sirius's eventual fate here, the things worth dying for and easy for you to say exchange between Sirius and Fred is extra agonizing yes. to consider given that they will both end up dying in the series. Number two, the headmaster's portraits and Dumbledore. After Dumbledore's demise in Half-Blood Prince, headmaster Severus Snape will continue to be advised by and take orders from Dumbledore's portrait. It was under these orders that Snape delivered the sword of Godric Gryffindor to Harry Potter. Also, Phineas's grim old portrait will be huge in Deathly Hallows when it's in the traveling bag Hermione takes on the Horcrux hunt and can gain info from its other portrait in Snape's office. Number three. As we mentioned, Hagrid says that Dumbledore travels via Thestral on occasion, which is notable in a couple respects. First of all, so does Grindelwald, mm. as the Fantastic Beast, the Crimes of Grindelwald trailer indicates, and certainly as the Lego set Grindelwald's Escape indicates. We know that Dumbledore and Grindelwald shared quite a bit together, and this is one more thing that they apparently had in common, travel by Thestral. Also notable here, because even though it is not a surprise that a wizard as old and experienced as Dumbledore would be able to see Thestrals, this makes perfect sense considering, it is still an indication that he has seen and processed true death and grief, and thus a hint at his tragic past. Number four, what does Dumbledore mean by, in essence, divided? Rowling has spoken on this in an interview from 2007. She was asked, what does, in essence, divided mean? She said, Dumbledore suspected that the snake's essence was divided, that it contained part of Voldemort's soul, and that is why it was so very adept at doing his bidding. This also explained why Harry, the last and unintended Horcrux, could see so clearly through the snake's eyes, just as he regularly sees through Voldemort's Dumbledore's thinking aloud here, edging toward the truth. Number five, there's an amazingly comedic moment when, as the kids are making their way to the tea room, one of the portraits starts shouting at Ron about his clear case of spattergroit. "'Tis the most grievous affliction of the skin, young master, that will leave you pockmarked and more gruesome even than you are now. Watch who you're calling gruesome,' said Ron, his ears turning red. 
But this isn't just comedy. This is also foreshadowing. When Ron goes with Harry in Deathly Hallows, skipping his seventh year at Hogwarts, he knows that he's going to need an excuse, and he uses that ailment. The Weasleys have the family ghoul in the attic impersonate him, knowing that no one would want to get too close to inspect someone who's actually suffering from that affliction. Number six. The hospital guest next to Arthur has a werewolf bite, and he expresses sadness that there's no cure. A year later, the Weasley family will have another huddle around a hospital bed when they talk about a werewolf victim, Billy Weeze. Still hot. Still hot. Number seven. When Hagrid returns and regales them with his tail, Ron expresses shock that any journey could take a full month. <laughs> yeah. Just wait till Deathly Hallows, my guy. Yeah, no wonder Ron fucking flips out and can't handle it. <laughs> Mal, I don't want anyone to talk to me. Well, that was a bit stupid of you. Yeah. Seeing as you don't know anyone but me who's been possessed by you-know-who, and I can tell you how it feels. Yes. While also crowning today's champion. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points. And I'm wearing the house cup to... Ginevra Weasley! Ginny, Ginny, Ginny. Great book for Ginny. Great book for Ginny and Hermione. Could have been another Hermione win here. Look, Ginny... No one's happy about the reason why, but she does replace Harry as Seeker for the Gryffindor Quidditch team, which is a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. Bathtub Gin Weasley, she dunks on Harry, who is in his nobody stands what I'm going through phase. And she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Tom was my good friend before he was your good friend. <laughs> <laughs> But just the fact that she can even bring that up in those circumstances show how far she's come, how she's healed from that experience. Yeah, the fact that she is the one who finally breaks through to Harry when he is in this funk is so notable and also, yeah. of course, speaks to their budding connection, which sure. we get another small hint about. Even though this is a heavy Harry Cho section, there's this line when they're all sitting around waiting in the kitchen, quote, Ginny was curled like a cat on her chair, but her eyes were open. Harry could see them reflecting the firelight. You know the only reason that you notice what somebody's eyes are reflecting? If you're gazing into that person's eyes. That's right. She's also the first to realize that Sirius is right, and they can't just rush off to the hospital, even though rushing off to the hospital was her idea. And she's also kicking ass in Dumbley's army. Just a great stretch. Yeah. Poor Michael. He's not going to last long. Well, friends, if you will excuse us, we have better things to do than listen to adolescent agonizing. Thanks, as always, to our own human homework planners, Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you all had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again on Monday. We will be discussing Order Chapters 24 through 28. Until then... Remember, if you've dotted the I's and crossed the T's, then you may do whatever you please. Harry, what is it? Uh, was it Cho? Cho. Did you kiss Cho? What? Mouth. She cry.
Harry, are you okay? Snake. Fang. What? Harry. H- Harry? Oh, my God. Let's fuck it.